and open a Bible this morning to the end of the book of Malachi. So this is the very end of the Old Testament. If you're using one of the Bibles that's there in the pew in front of you, you can find this on page 951. This is the sixth and final sermon in this series, looking at the six oracles that Malachi brings. Six messages. Now, this bridges the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 because the men who added the numbers added them 1,200 years after the time of Christ, which is 1,600 years after the time that Malachi wrote it. And so they put the chapter breaks at points where there's a clear emphasis in message. So chapter 4 begins, surely the day is coming. Well, that's the reiterated message that began it for us back in verse 13 of Malachi 3. Malachi has condemned the spiritual apathy of God's people. They brought flawed sacrifices. They've ignored the commands of God. They refuse to repent of their sin. And yet, in his mercy, God continues to offer them grace. A warning about the coming judgment, the opportunity to respond by turning from sin. And so listen as I read the end of the book of Malachi. I'm going to begin at Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Malachi 3, 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I will make them my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, a sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the, the, the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Let me pray for us this morning that God would apply this truth to us. Father in heaven, we give you glory and honor because of what you have done for us. We are a people whose, whose minds still race. We struggle to quiet ourselves, to listen. Even in the reading of your word, we, we're filled with questions. We're filled with fears and concerns. And so, Father in heaven, in the truth of your gospel, I pray that you would give us comfort. Lord, I pray for those who listen to this preaching, 
who don't yet have a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, that in the hope of your word, by the power of your spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be made clear to all who listen. Lord, even as, as we listen to your word, you prepare our hearts to come to the table, which reminds us of the sacrifice of our Savior, which assures us of the certainty of his kingdom. And so, Lord, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If your house was on fire and you could only grab one thing, what would it be? Or maybe that's not a hypothetical question for you and some of our neighbors with rising floodwaters, with tornado warnings. Those were real questions that were asked. And so for my hypothetical, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that everyone who lives with you is safe, that all of your pets have made it to safety, but you have time for, for one item, what would you grab? For some of us, maybe it would be something sentimental, a family heirloom that's been passed through the generations that connects you with the, the stories of your grandparents and great-grandparents, that reminds you of the love of your parents. For some of us, maybe it would be, it'd be something actually financially valuable that we think, okay, this is, the, this is the thing the insurance company is going to give me the hardest problem with, and this is worth keeping. Now, some of you think, well, I don't have anything that's worth grabbing like that. But, but what would it be? What is your treasured possession? Malachi tells us today what God's treasured possession is, what God would preserve in time of danger, whom he protects, For the king who owns everything, you are his treasured possession. That's the message Malachi brings to the people of God, to people broken and burdened by sin, people who feel the, the weight of their own rebellion, people who see a world that's falling apart around them. God comes to them and says, you are my treasured possession. Now remember, as we've looked at Malachi, we've seen that, that God states a truth, and then the people raise an objection. God tells them something, and then they, they immediately say, no, 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 that, that can't be the case. And maybe that's really where your heart already is. Well, that, pastor, that can't be right. If I was God's treasured possession, then then I wouldn't feel the way I feel. If I was God's treasured possession, then my life wouldn't be falling apart around me. If I mattered that much to God, then, then surely I would know it. And yet that's the beauty of, of God's word, of God's prophecies, is that, that we're reminded of truths we should already know, of things that, that, yes, intellectually I should be able to check off. Yep, this makes sense. God is a God of love. God loves me. Okay, let's move it along, Pastor. And yet, our hearts resist. And that's why this, this pattern of, of Malachi, when God says something, when God confronts us, and then, and then the people respond, but no, that, that can't quite be right. It's helpful to us, because that's the reaction of our own hearts. Look back at verse 13, where this prophecy began, where God brings a word of condemnation against the people because they are attempting to overrule God. They're saying, well, okay, you might be the king, the almighty Lord, but I know better. 
My way would be better. I should have authority to overrule you, to stand above you as Lord of you. Look at verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Their people are saying as if their words matter more than God, as if they know what is really true. One commentator says that that phrase, harsh things, could be, could be translated malicious gossip. You have spoken malicious gossip against God by calling into question his character, by, by denying his actions, by saying that, that what he demands of us, well, that, that's just not true, by overruling God. And the people ask, well, then what have we said against you? Verse 14 then makes it clear. You have said it is futile to serve God. I mean, what's the point? If I work really hard to serve God, I don't get anywhere. And my neighbors who do nothing to serve God seem to get way ahead of me. I mean, God asks me to give and I give, and, and that puts me further back than the people who hoard for themselves. God asks me to obey, and that, that takes away what I think would be fun. That takes away advantages for me, and, and people who don't obey, they, they get ahead. And so it's, it's worthless, it's pointless, it's empty trying to serve God. Because the arrogant, verse 15, have been blessed when I look around. Those that are evil appear to prosper. Those that ignore and abandon God actually seem to get away with it. And, and it's as if the people in the time of Malachi are saying, because God hasn't given me the answer I want, he must not have any answer at all. Because God appears to be silent, there must not be truth that I could find in this circumstance. When I ask the question, which is not a, merely an ancient question, this is a question you probably asked at some point this week. What's gone wrong? How come bad things keep happening to good people? How come the world seems, seems to be falling apart? I mean, these are questions that we ask now. And even if we don't, we don't think it out loud, we, we feel it instinctively that the world isn't right. How could this possibly happen? And, and we might think, well, maybe there's a reason, but I can't figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, well, then I guess maybe there's not a reason. If I don't know the reason, then there must not be a reason. If I haven't already figured it out, then there can't be an answer God could possibly give. We, we make this, what one commentator says, is a false argument from silence. I don't know the answer, so there is no answer. And yet think about how arrogant that kind of claim is, that claim to have all truth, that if I don't know it, then it's not true. I mean, I don't do that in other areas of my life. I mean, I try to, but, but sometimes it's really obvious that I shouldn't do that. I mean, I can't even help my kids with their homework. Okay, and I'm not talking about my, my, my son who's in college, although I actually think I'd probably do pretty well in his biblical revelation class, like if he needs help there. But with his math class and, and with his science class, like, don't bother calling me. You passed me in like the fourth grade. But really, honestly, not just because my kids are in middle school and high school. I mean, when they were in elementary school, I could not help them with their math homework. Now, you as teachers understand why, because I learned math a really terrible way, and I can't actually think through problems. I don't understand how it works. But like, when it comes to my kids' math homework, I don't assume that, well, because I don't know the answer, there is no answer, therefore you don't have to do your homework tonight. No, that would be arrogant. 
And yet in so many areas of my life, that's exactly what I do. I take my idea, my half-baked idea that I came to just in this moment, and then I, I pour it out on everyone else as if this is all the truth that there is. So that when a big question comes to me, a question about the goodness of God, about what has gone right or wrong in the universe, then I assume that if I can't give you a clear and full answer, there cannot be a clear answer. And yet I can't even help with math homework. And I expect the God of the universe to explain everything to me right in this moment. See, maybe the humility we need when we look at ultimate questions, questions about good and evil, right and wrong, why bad things happen and what can be done, maybe I should be humble. I should expect not to have every answer right in this moment. And yet the people say it's futile, it's worthless, it's empty trying to serve God. There can be no good answer for me. Now the pattern of Malachi has prepared us for what should come next. The, the pattern of, of all the other five oracles that we've been given. God makes a statement. The people doubt God's statement, and then God responds by reaffirming the truth of what he already told them, by showing them the implications of their foolishness. But there's a surprise here in this final oracle because there's a group of people that show up that we haven't heard from at all in the book of Malachi. Look at verse 16. So far in Malachi, we've only seen the prophet speak on behalf of God and the people rebel against God. But suddenly, surprisingly, but hopefully, there are people here who are actually listening to God. Look at, look, look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Wait a second, I didn't even know there was anybody left in the land that, that feared God. I mean, if you've read the whole rest of the book, they're all scoundrels and thieves. They're all trying to steal from God, bringing, bringing flawed offerings to God. And yet, surprisingly, God has kept for himself a remnant of true believers, people who have actually listened to the prophet. Now, I don't know if they listened to the first five oracles and they've repented or that, that they were people that God has been preserving all along. But we're surprised in verse 16 when, when we read, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And, and what did they say? What are they talking about? Well, the Lord listened and heard. They bring out a scroll of remembrance. They write in the presence of God concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Now, in the Old Testament, when you remember something, you know, it's not just like, oh, where did I put my keys? I mean, these, these moments of remembrance are significant moments. And what do they, what do they remember? What God has done for us. But in this moment, they decide, you know what? God is calling us back to faithfulness to his covenant, a, a, a promise that he made to us that, that we should enter in relationship with him. And so we're going to write it down. Somebody get a scroll and let's write this down. Like, let's write down today, remembering what God has done for us because we've forgotten. And you know what? Before we get back to the temple next week, we're likely to forget again. Let, let's write it down, and, and the scroll of remembrance actually probably then identifies the names of those who are among the faithful, where they're standing up and saying, well, count me among those that God loves. They commit themselves 
to listening to God's truth, to remembering who he is and what he's done. But what about us? I mean, if the leaders of the church rolled out a scroll today and said, you know what, now's the time to recommit, to remember what God has done. The, the, the previous months have been chaotic. We, you know, we're, are, are we even sure what, what church members are here? So let's, let's pull out the scroll and let's write your name down. Would you do it? Or would you hesitate and say, well, I'm not sure. When the world's message threatens our convictions, would we want to stand up and say, no, no, I, I count myself on the side of the Lord? When classmates look sideways at you and think, are you kidding me? Like, that's what you believe? Do we shrink from those moments? Or can we say, yes, but listen to what a good and gracious God has done for me? Do we choose the easy route when it comes to our faith, to stand among the many? Or will we be counted among those who feared the Lord, who then turn and talk with one another, reminding each other of the gospel? And so, so in this last of the, the prophecies of Malachi, there's this generous reminder that you are not alone in this. I mean, so far it's been the prophet against the people. But now finally here at the end, there are some who will stand with the prophet for truth. Because when God steps in to speak, there is both comfort and warning. I mean, the, the coming judgment is clear. We, we've seen it throughout the book of Malachi. We, we saw it a couple of weeks ago that, that there was a messenger who was coming, but it was a day of judgment, a day of fire, a day in which the launderer would, 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 would soak you in the purity of, what, of who God is. And that's repeated for us here. We see this coming judgment. Look at verse 17, when the prophet says, speaking on behalf of God, they will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. The day which is coming, the day which becomes more clear in chapter four, verse one, which is probably why there's a new chapter break here. Surely the day is coming. Wait, which day? I mean, there's always a day coming, right? I mean, there's always tomorrow, and then tomorrow there'll be another tomorrow. So we're not just talking about the, the, the cycling of the calendar, we're talking about when the calendar ends. At that end point, when the day of the Lord arrives, it will be a day of judgment. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says it will burn like a furnace, the hottest fire that could be imagined in the ancient world where you could actually melt metal inside the, the furnace. When the arrogant, the evildoers will become stubble. A day in which they will be set on fire and, and not even a root or branch will be left for them. Everything will be consumed. A day in which, finally, the God himself will give an answer to the question that people brought. Because in verse, verses 14 and 15, they said, it doesn't matter if we're wicked or righteous because, because God has abandoned us. He doesn't even see goodness or righteousness. And actually, if, if I'm going on, like, I think wickedness is actually what pays off in the end. But God answers the people's question that they raise in verses 14 and 15 in verse 18. He says, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You don't see it right now because the wicked seem to get ahead. But you will see it on that day. 
A distinction between those who serve God and those who do not. You see, that's really the dividing point that Malachi gives, that the Bible gives. Are you counted among the righteous, those who turn and follow after God? Are you counted among the wicked, those who serve themselves, serve their own desires, chase after what they want in this life? And God is offering us this warning that that day is coming. Surely that day is coming. The fact that God has delayed in bringing about that day doesn't mean it's not coming. The fact that we're now in the year 2021, where we're thousands of years past the arrival of Christ. The, the length of time doesn't mean that God has forgotten. It actually shows us the, 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 the width of God's mercy that he's willing to delay so that people can respond to this message, that they can repent, that they could turn away from wickedness, turn from serving themselves, and turn back to serve God, to be found righteous. Not because they've done enough good stuff to make themselves righteous, but because they've responded to the word of warning and they found hope in what God has done. Because this passage, while it brings a clear picture of judgment, a furnace of God's wrath to be poured out on humanity. While it's a clear picture of judgment, it also offers us a picture of God's coming hope. We see it in verse 17. They will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I mean, this is language that, that connects the people back to, to when they first became a people that they would be God's treasured possession. Back in the book of Exodus, in chapter 19, God has rescued the people from slavery in Egypt. He's now brought them out into the wilderness in order to give them the law so that they can, in covenant relationship with God, go into the promised land. I mean, Exodus chapter 20 has familiar words, familiar verses, even if you didn't know they were from Exodus, the Ten Commandments. But here, as, they're, as they've arrived at the mountain of God, God tells them what he's going to do for them. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, we read, well, let me begin at verse 4, Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a reminder that God is a loving, rescuing God. He says, now if you obey me fully, if you keep my covenant, and, and, and the order matters, God rescued them and then asks them to obey. God's grace comes first, his undeserved love and mercy comes first, and then we're called into relationship. But he says in verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I mean, you see, God is the king who owns everything. I mean, he could be rescued from his palace without needing to bring anything with him because he's got other palaces and other places. He's got other servants to, to fix all that's gone wrong, and yet God who owns everything, although the whole earth is mine, you are my treasured possession. These are the words God speaks to his people. A people not, not chosen because of their goodness, not chosen because of their greatness, 
the, the Bible tells us actually it's the opposite. He's chosen because, they are chosen because of God's goodness. Their sin will show forth the greatness of God when he forgives them. Their, their fragility, the fact that they barely exist as a nation, that they have no autonomy or strength of their own, will show forth the greatness and power of God when he rescues them from sin. And that's what God does for us. So you come to God not as one who is already righteous, but one who can be made righteous through Jesus, our Savior. The rescue that comes from God, and then we respond in obedience. As we flip back to Malachi, we see not only the promise that we are God's treasured possession, but in chapter 4, he, he tells us that, that, that he will bring forth a son to rise like the sun rises daily, this will be a son of righteousness. This is chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And admittedly, commentators struggle with those images because it seems to be conflating all kinds of imagery. Imagery of a rising sun with, a, with the rising of a, of a bird with, with eagle's wings. And perhaps it's capturing something of, of the moments of the exodus, when there would have been iconography around them with a, with a godlike son with, with wings. Not an uncommon image in the ancient world, but, it, but it's a clear picture that God himself will bring forth righteousness onto the people. They will respond, verse 2 tells us, like those who go forth and leap for joy. Like a, like a calf who's, who's let out into the field for the first time to run and to jump, to stretch its legs and to use its muscles. You and I are rescued by God. Actually, those... This verse sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because Charles Wesley put it into your memory. This isn't the first time I've referenced the Christmas hymn during the series of Malachi, partly because he's the last prophet, so the very next thing to happen in the Bible is Christmas, the promised arrival of the king who would come. And so Charles Wesley tells us in that hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the son of righteousness. And it's not a misspelling that it's not S-O-N, it's S-U-N in the hymn. Because those are the very words of Malachi, that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. See, the words of Malachi anticipate the arrival of the king, the one who comes to rescue us. And so you and I are called to remember what God has done, to call one another to a time of remembrance. But God says it explicitly at the end of the book, almost as if it's a summary of all that has come before, verses 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees that I gave you at Horeb. Well, now we've already been reminded of what happened in Exodus 19 and 20, when God rescued his people and gave them the command through his servant Moses. But not only is Moses referenced, there's a, another prophet of the Old Testament referenced for us. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. When God calls us to remember what he has done, he says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The prophet who will come changing hearts. Now, the people may have anticipated the return of Elijah in the flesh because he was the prophet who left without dying, the one caught up into heaven by God himself. 
a, a picture for us of, of what a great prophet was meant to do. A prophet who, like Malachi, stood when there was, was but a small remnant of the people faithful to God and spoke the truth of God to the people, calling them to repentance. But the anticipation which we find when we turn to the New Testament is not of, of a, the physical return of Elijah himself, but of a prophet like Elijah. When we turn to the next book in the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, we find out who this Elijah is. The prophet who comes to fulfill what we're told in Malachi is John the Baptist. John, the last of the prophets who came. Jesus himself explains it to us in Matthew 11, verse 13. He says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. From Moses until Elijah, you've heard this message. John 11, verse 14, and if you were willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. He was ears, let him hear. Jesus explains it to us. The prophet you were waiting for has come. What was his job? To tell the people that the very next arrival, there's not, there's not another earthly prophet coming. The next one who steps onto stage is Jesus the Messiah. God himself will be here. And, and if, you, if you continue in the Gospel of Matthew, then you see it. In Matthew 17, that Peter, James, and John go up with Jesus onto the mountain. And Jesus is transformed before them. We, we call it the transfiguration because there's, there's not a, a way to describe it. Jesus, an earthly man, the Son of God standing before us, is now shown to us in all of the glory of heaven. His face was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before them, who? Well, the very ones that Malachi said we needed to remember. The ones who appear at the end of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, now appear with Jesus. Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountain, showing forth the glory of the Son of God. And, and, and Peter's so flustered, he says, Lord, it would be good for us, if, if you wish, I'll put up three shelters right here. We should stay here. Something, something amazing is happening in this moment. But of course, Jesus says, no, no, I'm not meant to stay here. I don't merely go up the mountain to be shown forth in glory. What does Jesus, our Savior, do? He brings healing in his wings. He rescues us from our sin. He brings us the hope of full healing. We gain his righteousness through his death on the cross. So we see the glory of Jesus most fully not on the Mount of Transfiguration, but on the Mount of Golgotha, the place of the skull where he's nailed to a cross. And so put your trust in this Savior. Turn from trusting in yourself. Admit your failure. Humble yourself before God. He offers us the hope of eternal life, a kingdom that lasts forever. And yet while, while Malachi was telling us Christmas is coming, he is also telling us that the return of Christ is coming. From Malachi's perspective, he, he looked and, and couldn't differentiate those. He just saw the arrival of the king. You and I stand between those moments in history. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin. He will come again to put right all that has gone wrong. Malachi looks to the healing of the Messiah, the anticipation of the full restoration of everything. And so remember what God has done for you. Jesus gave himself for you. Follow him in joy. Like a, like a, a, a calf released in the field but anticipate what God 
will do. Jesus is coming again, and he guarantees your hope. Malachi, for all his words of warning and judgment, is really a book of hope. It's bookended with such beautiful promises. It begins in chapter 1 with the promise, I have loved you, says the Lord. And it ends in the final prophecy with the truth that you are God's treasured possession. You belong to the Lord. You are dearly loved. Loved in the righteousness of Christ. Loved for the sake of Christ. God says, I love you. You are my treasured possession. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table which has been prepared for us by Jesus himself, that we would be able to see and touch and taste the mercy that is here before us. Lord, for those that have listened to your word and yet are still left with questions, Lord, I pray that they would find truth in your gospel, that even those who watch this sacrament, who just observe it from a distance, would see in your word the hope that we have in Jesus, our Savior. So, Father in heaven, we come praying in his name. Amen.